You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to the very first program of The Natural Philosopher. If you're listening to this, then you must not be thinking, oh no, not another ISO podcast. I saw a meme a couple of months ago, and it said something along the lines of, if you're a 25-year-old white male, we do not need a podcast from you during this time. To which I responded, well, I'm 50, is that okay? And the person who posted it said, yes, I'd listen to a podcast by Mick Pope, which I took as encouragement. I got one of those Facebook reminders not so long ago, less than a month ago now, where I asked three whole years ago, what's the ideal length of a podcast? So it's not as if this is a new thing, but here I am in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, in stage four lockdown, which means that there is a curfew at night and I can only travel five kilometers from my home. So what better time than the present to begin? So this first program in the first half, I'll introduce the series and just talk a little bit about myself. And in the second half, ask or answer the question rather what is a natural philosopher and why does it matter so yes i'm 50 years of age turning 51 and probably in some degree of lockdown when it happens and my first uh, university degrees were in science so i have an honors degree in applied mathematics and i looked at the destruction of stars around rotating black holes which was a fascinating um, project even though it doesn't relate much relate much to everyday life, but as a science nerd, I found it fascinating. And then I enrolled in a PhD in theoretical astrophysics. And three years later, after a combination of perhaps lacking an idea of how to do research well, um, maybe not the nouse for the, for the particular field, and perhaps not that work ethic, I ended up with a master's degree instead. I then became a forecast meteorologist, and after obtaining a role as a lecturer, did my PhD in variability of the climate over northern Australia. So my particular interest is tropical climate. So I guess I mentioned that, A, because this podcast is very much about environment and climate change and other things, that I have some expertise or acumen in that area, but also as an encouragement for younger readers perhaps, or read, uh, listeners rather, of any age, that the path to uh, and eventual destination, in my case a PhD in science, is not necessarily a linear one. In fact, it never is, even if you remain in the one discipline. I've also studied theology um, at an undergraduate level, and that's a long story in of itself, but I'm currently studying a master's degree at Whitley College, which is part of the University of Divinity here in Melbourne, and I'm looking at the relationship between Genesis 1-3 to and the broader what's known as the priestly tradition, or in fact the holiness tradition, and how it might bear upon an ethic for the Anthropocene. 
And these are ideas that I'll touch upon in due course. So what this podcast represents is a personal journey of mine through science, environment and Christianity. And such an idea is nothing new. In 1969, art historian Kenneth Clark narrated a fantastic TV series, if not somewhat bourgeois, called Civilization, A Personal View. So he looked at art history as it relates to civilization. Then 10 years later, and for me personally transformative and inspiring, the late Carl Sagan, an astrophysicist, related Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. So this podcast series will be my personal voyage through science, environment, and the Christian faith. Now, all three terms can be deconstructed, and we will do that in due course. Uh, but for the moment, let's run with it as a, a snappy little tagline, right? So what that implies that this whole thing is a personal journey of mine is that firstly, it won't be comprehensive. It can't possibly hope to be. But hopefully, it's mostly comprehensible. It'll be what interests me and what I know a little bit about, or indeed what the guests that I'll have on the show will know about. It won't be me speaking ex-cathedra, and yes, that's a pun on my name, I'm not making papal pronouncements. So I'm not pretending to have expertise, nor authority, nor standing morally above others. You know, when you're dealing with issues of environment and climate change, it's very easy to get on one's high horse and point the finger. In that regard, no one's really in a position to do that, and a thorough understanding of the Christian faith would, you know, turn to cliches of, we're all sinners, and, uh, and therefore, it's not a wise thing to do to try and set oneself up above others. Nonetheless, hopefully the program will call out things that need to be called out when they need to be called out. It will most certainly be an exploratory series. A number of years ago, I met a fellow called Ron Chung, who runs the Academy for Christian Thought out of New York. And he has this wonderful idea of a theological safe space which is essentially the freedom to toss ideas around and not be judged for them. So I guess on the one hand, if Ken Ham is one of your favourite authors, or on the other, perhaps Richard Dawkins, you might not get a lot out of this podcast series. But if you fall somewhere in between, you might find it encouraging. And finally, it's something of a conversation. Now I know a podcast, it's not necessarily given itself to... Uh, conversing, but if you follow me on Twitter as CloudCounter, or my Facebook page, Mick Pope Natural Philosopher, as well as, of course, subscribing to this podcast, you'll be able to provide feedback and questions and things to read and so on, all hopefully in the spirit of dialogue. Now, all personal journeys start out with childhood, so let's begin there, both for myself and maybe think about your own. Neil deGrasse Tyson was mentored by Carl Sagan. I mentioned Carl earlier as having produced a wonderful series on science in general and astronomy and astrophysics in particular, Cosmos. And Degrassi Tyson rebooted it. And to be honest, uh, I think it's an inferior product, but it's not a bad program at all. But nonetheless, Degrassi Tyson uh, once said, when you are a kid, you are born a scientist. But what does a scientist do? We look up and we say, I wonder what that is. Let me go find out. Let me poke it. Let me turn it around. This is what kids do. They are exploring their environment through experimentation. This is what we do as human beings. And I think this is true to a point, and maybe it's true for your experience as well. Growing up in a house in a suburb in Brisbane, I remember we had 
green tree frogs in the backyard in the banana palm. There were frilled neck lizards in the front yard. So, you know, in an age before computers and computer games and so on, my playground as a small child of five and six was my backyard and my chief playmate was my dog. So I just related to things that were other than human and was fascinated by them. I can remember in particular at school being a fairly decent reader for my age and a book on Mexican walking fish. Now that really puzzled me. Of course, it's it's a, an amphibian, an axolotl, but it piqued my interest and my fascination. We went on a holiday to Cairns and I picked up seashells. I collect, collected bugs and put them in boxes. Yeah, I was a nerd, a wannabe scientist from five or six, and I'm proud of it. And it's what set me on the path to university. Is this true in your own experience? Did you develop a fascination for the world around you at a young age? Henry Cowles, in a piece in Aeon magazine, which is an online magazine, and I'll put the link on the Facebook page, uh, verifies Degrassi Tyson's statement using child psychology. He cites a paper by theory theorist Alison Gopnik, who states that, quote, children are little scientists, but also, quote, scientists are big children. And this view actually goes back to the late 1800s when John Dewey structured childhood learning based around observation and experimentation, and kids responded really well. This is before the Montessori schools. Gopnik notes that children form theories and test them just as scientists do, and that humans in general typically inquire in a way that leads to truth on average. And so that's, if you like, the whole peer review process, that over time, our theories about the world around us improve and provide us with better and better predictions about the future. In a typically reductionistic vein correct but insufficient, uh, it, Gopnik notes that evolution constructed truth-finding cognitive processes, which means our brains, having evolved in the world in which we live, give us some correct knowledge about the world around us. Um, but science is philosophically unreflective about the processes that generate uh, the belief about the world as being comprehensible. And this is done so after the fact by philosophers of science. So she seems to suggest that scientists are pragmatic in, in a sense. Is that a shortfall in training? Well, we'll talk about that more below. Of course, this is a problem today. My initial classroom was my backyard. Of course, kids now are tied to computers and are more and more disconnected from nature, a, a topic we'll, we'll talk about in future programs. But it's also a function of systemic racism and classism. So it's typically um, the poor and um, minority groups who don't have access to green spaces and so can't gain that experience. But I also think there's a, a problem with Degrassi Tyson's quote. If ever you've known a small child, they ask why. A lot about everything, not just about the natural world, but about why they have a particular bedtime or why cars are on the left-hand side of the road rather than the right. Kids are naturally prone, for example, to imparting personality to their toys. They have theories of mind that are developing and seem naturally able to accept the idea of invisible beings. So is belief in God a feature of childhood? Are kids philosophers and theologians as well as scientists? 
I think it's terribly reductionistic and scientific to limit childhood fascination and curiosity purely to science as a discipline. Of course, that's espoused by, guess what, scientists. Reductionists like chemist Peter Atkins think that science can answer all of the big questions. But it's rather ironic, isn't it, when someone like um, the late Stephen Hawking can say that philosophy is dead, is that he's making a philosophical rather than a scientific statement. And that when Richard Dawkins says that theology is the study of nothing, he's making a very shallow, I might add, theological statement. Scientists can privilege their ways of knowing above others. And what I want to propose here is a balance. Science is incredibly useful. It does give us measurable knowledge about the world in which we live. But we need to remember that science itself is a human endeavour and scientists and the discoveries are contextualised in particular periods in history and civilizations and worldviews. We need to avoid reductionism and admit multiple ways of knowing, which is obviously going to be the focus of this podcast, given I speak as both a scientist and a Christian and a student of theology. So how do we do this as a Christian? Well, I'm, my mind goes back to the days when I'd finished my master's and I was contemplating my future and I really wanted to be ordained as an Anglican minister. And I won't mention the diocese in which this was happening. And I was talking about my desire to, to do something in the sciences before I left for the ministry. And that was poo-pooed by the person who was counselling me at the time. And I talked about my childhood and my fascination for science. And he said, well, that was just you seeking approval from your parents and your teacher. And I was pretty gobsmacked. My God-given curiosity about the world around me was written off as my sinful nature. You see, in the Western Christian tradition, we often start with the story of what's referred to as the fall in Genesis 3, rather than the creation of all that is good in Genesis 1. And I'm reminded very often that that's the case, a dichotomy between not just Western versus Eastern Orthodox tradition, but also white Christianity and that of indigenous peoples. And that reminder comes to me from Brooke Prentice, my wonderful friend, Waka Waka Woman, Christian uh, Aboriginal spokesperson and CEO of Common Grace, and I hope to have her on the program in the future that Indigenous peoples can help us revisit scripture and begin to reread it in a non-dualistic manner, the way in which it's meant to be read. So what sorts of thing are we going to cover in this program? Well, lots of theology, lots of science, and some programs may be entirely science or entirely theology, and others I hope to be thoroughly integrated. I hope to interview theorists and practitioners alike, because you may get fed up with the sound of my voice. <laughs> Every program... And when it comes to politics, politics is an area where one always should tread rather wisely. You won't hear party political statements from this podcast, but theology and things like climate change science are unavoidably political. So we will need to think about how do these things translate uh, from just mere talk into how we might live uh, as people in a world where the climate is rapidly changing and how we might order our size, our society rather in a manner that's somewhat appropriate. So that's a brief introduction to me and what this program is about. And in the second half, we'll hone in on this idea of what a natural philosopher is.
Well, welcome back. Thanks for coming back and listening to part two, entitled, What is a Natural Philosopher and Why Does It Matter? When we look at the historical development of science, philosopher of science Nicholas Maxwell, in an essay entitled Natural Philosophy Redux, warns us that we make an anachronistic split between scientists and philosophers in figures such as Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Richard Hooke, René Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, Barak Spinoza and Gottfried Leibniz, just to name a few. Galileo, for example, made careful observations and performed experiments, but also adopted a metaphysical view of nature that held that, quote, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. That is, simple mathematical laws govern the way that natural phenomena occur. René Descartes is known for his famous dictum, cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am. He arrived at this via a series of arguments about whether we are truly conscious or asleep or deceived by a demon. I suggest you read his discourse on method and then watch the original Matrix movie to have your mind blown. Trust me. He also gave us the Cartesian coordinate system used in vector calculus, which is a branch of mathematics. Then there is Isaac Newton, who developed calculus and described the laws of gravity, but also wrote more works of theology than science. It seems many famous names of science did theology and philosophy, and some philosophers did mathematics and physics. But according to Maxwell, the break between what C.P. Snow would later describe as the two cultures comes from a profound misunderstanding of the nature of science, promoted by Newton, who claimed he derived his laws of gravitation via induction. Now, inductive reasoning makes broad generalizations from specific observations, or in other words, theory follows data. This emphasis on data takes for granted empiricism, which claims that sense experience is the ultimate source of all our concepts and knowledge. If I can see it, feel it, touch it, then it's real and I can form ideas. By contrast, deductive reasoning starts out with a hypothesis and examines the possibilities to reach a specific logical conclusion. This is more at the rationalistic end of the spectrum, where knowledge can be gained independently of sense experience. Maxwell observes differences between the first and third editions of Principia Mathematica, which is Newton's big tome on gravitation, etc., and a deliberate shift from metaphysics, hypotheses and deduction to induction, Apparently, this was to hide metaphysics from his critics, because he knew his whole theory would be somewhat um, controversial. Thereafter, induction was taken for granted, and of course Newton was a huge figure, and so people picked this up, and natural philosophy and metaphysics went into retreat. Now, I'll talk more about what natural philosophy is shortly. This, Maxwell claims, is the way scientists think today, now known as the inference to the best explanation, or sometimes identified as abductive reasoning. I suspect, however, that some fields of theoretical physics, including cosmology, um, in those fields, empiricism has not entirely displaced rationalism. Take, for example, Einstein's theory of relativity. He assumes nothing can travel faster than light. If you do that, you can then explain the arrival of particles known as muons at the Earth's surface. These are the result of cosmic rays interacting with the um, the atmosphere, and they should have decayed, they should have died off before they hit the Earth's surface, but that's the whole relativity and, and time dilation effect. 
Likewise, assume mass curves time, or in fact, curves space-time more properly. Even if you live in a world that is in a technical sense flat, you will see light curve around the sun. And Einstein proposed this general theory of relativity between 1907 and 1915. The effect of mass bending light was not observed until 1919 during an eclipse. Einstein was pleased with this result, but he didn't place a lot of weight on it, stating that, quote, I knew that the theory is correct. And then, when asked what if his theory hadn't been confirmed by the observations, he replied that, quote, then I would have been sorry for the dear Lord. The theory is correct. Later still, he wrote, I do not by any means find the chief significance of the general theory of relativity in the fact that it is it has predicted a few observable facts, but rather in the simplicity of its foundations and in its logical consistency. In other words, one of the greatest theories of the 20th century that tells us why the apple falls from the tree was not conceived so much as to meet or satisfy observations as it was because Einstein thought it was right, thought it was elegant, thought it was beautiful. That sounds a lot like rationalism to me. So some science proceeds in a manner beyond empiricism, but it often claims that it's still following it. I once heard South African mathematician, Quaker and peace activist George Ellis say that he told Stephen Hawking that he was doing philosophy and not cosmology. Maybe even if this is untrue, uh, it's, it's simply... Um, there's simply the need to stop denying science as a form of philosophy and be explicit about it. So in any case where it's, it's not very explicit like cosmology, we need to explicitly identify that there are philosophical underpinnings for everything that we do. As I said earlier in the program, it, when people like biologist Richard Dawkins or physicist Stephen Hawking claim that philosophy is dead, they are in fact doing philosophy. They are in fact assuming things about the nature of reality. They are making metaphysical assumptions. The same goes when proclaiming that God is dead or that theology is about nothing. This is doing theology. If one is going to wander into another field, declare that you're doing so. This is of course this, of course, opens the door for both theology and philosophy to make statements and analyse other disciplines, including science. Not so much to dictate to it, but to ask the hard questions of the practice. There is a meme going about that says science can tell you how to clone a dinosaur, but only the humanities can tell you that this is a really stupid idea. And this is kind of what I'm getting at. Now, I don't go all the way with David Hume in denying that evidence can't verify a theory, but then again, I'm not a philosopher but someone who's practiced science, and I certainly need to read more Hume. I do think, however, we need a humble empiricism and an explicit acknowledgement of our rationalistic assumptions. Declare your hand what your metaphysics is. You won't be seeing that any time soon in a refereed journal in science, but nonetheless, in more public pronouncements, people need to do this. So hence then, let's return to the idea of a natural philosopher. I wrote a thesis which examined ways to classify variability of the rainy season over northern Australia. For historical reasons, I was not awarded a Doctor of Science, but a Doctor of Philosophy, or a PhD. Now, this goes all the way back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle proposed two overlapping domains of thought. Physics, 
relates to the world of physical objects like nature, the motion of bodies, he even wrote a volume on meteorology, on the heavens, and the generation of perishing of life, so basically biology. This he called the first philosophy. Aristotle also proposed other forms separate from the physical world. This included uh, what he called the unmoved mover, who is the maintainer of all that is, the source of all motion, and we might identify with God. Since the physical world depended upon these forms, these non-physical forms, and consideration of them comes after physics, or what we call metaphysics. Aristotle's metaphysics and physics use a common conceptual framework, and they often address similar issues, and we see this in a number of sciences today. During the Renaissance, the resurgence of Platonicism led philosophy to a more otherworldly focus while Aristotelianism, following Aristotle, remained the driving force behind Renaissance philosophy of nature. It is argued that this means science was less bound to metaphysics and was freer to develop, but of course the West was still Christian, with science practiced by those within the Church. Likewise, science was still merged with less scientific ideas, hence chemistry and alchemy, and astronomy with astrology. Aristotelianism was defended and attacked at various points, of course, over time, his theories being replaced by more accurate ideas. So, for example, Galen became more prominent in medicine for his ideas on circulation. The point is, science and philosophy have been wedded together and now divorced, and I think it's time for a reconciliation and a remarriage. To return to the more integrated idea of natural philosophy, Maxwell proposes what he calls aim-oriented empiricism. Simply put, there is a hierarchy of assumptions above our empirical data that we need to articulate and accept. These range from accepted fundamental theories, so the laws of physics, for example, to the, the idea that the universe is comprehensible, itself something of a mystery, why it is that our evolved minds can understand the Big Bang, for example, to the idea that the universe is partially knowable. This latter idea makes... Uh, science a sensible pursuit. We don't think we'll ever hit the end of the scientific um, pursuit or idea. There'll always be new things to discover. While scientists apply these ideas and, and say that of Occam's razor, choosing the simplest explanation, they're actually doing philosophy. So I think philosophy is deeply embedded in science, whether or not we recognize it or whether or not we're explicit about it in our practice. When Maxwell discusses the comprehensibility of the universe, he describes it as the fact that, quote, there is something inherent in all phenomena that is responsible for the way that events occur, in terms of which everything can in principle be explained and understood. This ubiquitous something might be God or a cosmic purpose, one that all events occur in order to fulfill, or a unified pattern of physical law. An example of this is the multiverse hypothesis. This is the idea that the universe is one eternally expanding multiverse where every possibility is explored. So there might be an infinite number of Mick Popes recording a podcast right now. Why then is do we live in a universe where life is possible and where it exists and where this universe is comprehensible? Well, it's just statistics. Yet why such a multiverse? Why not an eternal barren multiverse? Where do the laws of physics that make this multiverse and the universes within it come from? Theists, such as Christians, 
counter that these same facts are explained by an eternal God. So I think that the multiverse is a version or a replacement for God, an eternal given universe rather than an eternal necessary being in the form of God. The point is, Christians have a place in the scientific academy. I think that Christians need to be schooled in theology as well as the professional discipline. And indeed, I think theologians should have some working knowledge of science. And that's a topic for another time. One more idea makes sense for me before I close. The word science is a relative new one from the Latin scientia, meaning knowledge. The term scientist was coined by Cambridge University historian and philosopher of science, William Werewell. I never say that right, in 1834. So it's a pretty new term. The term natural philosopher was dismissed by him as being, quote, simply too wide and too lofty a term. Uh, Actually, Howard Markle, professor of history of medicine at the University of Michigan, uh, said that. There's an aphorism that, quote, knowledge itself is power. And this was written by Francis Bacon. And it's led to science becoming a way of manipulating the world of inert matter for our own ends. And as we are seeing now with climate change and zoonotic viruses like the coronavirus, which is responsible for the disease COVID-19, to our detriment. Natural philosophy instead speaks of a love of wisdom. We need to learn wisdom from the natural world, or more properly for the Christian, from creation. Indeed, from the creator behind it. Yet we also need to accept that it will remain a puzzle and an enigma a point I will return to in future programs. Our science won't always conform to our understanding of the world from a theological point of view, but ultimately there must be some form of conciliance. Such an understanding will require the rejection of reductionism and allow for the concept of meaning as emergent. And I'll talk more about this idea of emergence in other programs, but in essence it means that everything does not simply reduce to atoms in motion, but high-order quantities such as consciousness, meaning, love, and ultimately God have real existence and require higher-order levels of explanation. So quantum mechanics might ultimately underpin theology, but we need theology to describe our experience of God. And theology is not the study of nothing. So I'm calling this program The Natural Philosopher because I want to understand the world around me at multiple levels to find a consilience of ways of knowing. I want to live wisely in a complex, perplexing world which, while comprehensible to a degree, ultimately eludes our full understanding. Indeed, the creator behind it transcends our full understanding but still draws us forward to be knowers, sub-creators, order makers, and perhaps most importantly, lovers of God and the rest of creation. And I hope that you will join me on this journey in this podcast series. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast currently on Podbean, and in future it will be available on other podcasting apps. You can also like my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.